The name above all names, Jesus Christ. He is the one we worship. He is the one we serve. And He is the one we owe our lives to here this morning. Well, it's my privilege and really my honor as well to introduce to you our guest speaker. And the reason for that is, some of you know, some of you may not know, our guest speaker is actually my father, Tyrone Adrian. And so I know many of you are new to our church, especially here in the last five years. And so you really do not have a, a, a history with my father and so I want to give you a little bit of background to him before he comes and speaks this morning and, uh, and really take you back to when they were first married. I have a few pictures here that will be coming up as well. Both Tyrone and Ann attended Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri to prepare for the ministry. It was love at first sight, so my dad tells me, when they met for the very first time. They were then married a year later, I think it was, on May 27th of 1960. A year later, in 1961, my dad graduated from BBC, ready to make a difference for eternity. Tyrone and Ann had always believed God had a plan for their lives and that God would reveal the details of that plan one step at a time. The early years of their ministry were filled with great zeal in living out God's plan. And so in 1961, they moved to Great Bend, Kansas, where they ministered at Harrison Street Baptist Church with his father, my grandfather, Albert Adrian. In 1963, they ministered at Hamlet Baptist Church in Amarillo, Texas. And in 1965, they ministered at Bel Air Baptist Church in El Paso, Texas. It was then in 1966, they moved to Hazleton, Kansas, where Tyrone became pastor of the Community Baptist Church. After two years, they moved back to the great metropolis of Great Bend, Kansas, where my dad worked with his father again as the associate pastor at Harrison Street Baptist Church. Along the way, during those early years of their ministry, God blessed Tyrone and Ann with three boys. I am the oldest, my brother Troy, and then my youngest brother, Todd. I'll let you guess which is which. In 1971, as a young 31-year-old, full of enthusiasm, my father became pastor of Glenwood Baptist Church here in Kansas City, Missouri. That October, he loaded up the U-Haul and made the trip from the middle of Kansas wheat fields to the big city here in Kansas City. Little did they know at the time that Glenwood would become their church home and place of ministry for so many years. With less than 100 people in attendance, no money in the bank, and a $50,000 building debt, my dad faced these new challenges with an enthusiastic faith that with God all things are possible. These new challenges quickly became new opportunities for God to prove himself faithful. And yes, through my dad's leadership, Glenwood experienced numerical and spiritual growth as many people were saved and baptized through the bus, children, youth, and adult ministries. In 1975, Tyrone then led our church in a $275,000 building program of the Education Building. If you scroll through to the next picture, you'll see that my dad not only preached as part of his ministry, but he could sing as well. Somehow, that gene did not get passed down to myself. Skipped a generation for some reason. Although my brother Todd led music last Sunday and actually did a pretty good job. So somehow he got that singing gene, not me. And you're thankful for that. And yes, 
the color green was fashionable in the early 70s with a green suit. Dad, I cannot believe you wore a green suit. As Tyrone and Ann approached the 80s, it was time of building on the foundation laid in the first 10 years while moving forward and outward in ministry. This resulted in a new focus on missions. New missionaries were added as Giving to Faith Promise grew. His personal ministry also expanded. He spoke in numerous revival meetings, youth camps, impacting many lives beyond the local ministry here of Glenwood. In 1982, he spoke in a missions revival served as a, or missions revival in Brazil. He served as the National Secretary for the Baptist Bible Fellowship International from 81 to 1987. And along the way, my mom's ministry with children and ladies continued to make an impact as well. She ministered in nursery, taught children's Sunday school classes, ministered in the youth ministry with the junior high for many years, and led the women's ministries. And as my mom and dad headed into the 90s, as you know, the world was changing, and so would their ministry here at our church. Some of the biggest changes after 20 years were people and ministry. There was a new generation of people attending with a renewed purpose of making disciples of the next generation. But it was in 1994 where my dad suffered a severe stroke that almost took his life. But God used the circumstances of the stroke to facilitate changes in leadership and ministry, the greatest of these being a sharing of the pastoral ministry. And with this team approach, the pastoral staff at that time began to share in the preaching, equipping, and missions responsibilities while lay people were leading the children in music. In September of 2001, my dad felt God leading him to step down as the senior pastor of this church. And through a transition team, I was then asked to consider if I would be interested in becoming the next pastor. After six months of discussions and prayer, the church voted me in as pastor. My dad remained on staff as the care pastor until December of 2002, when for a second time his life almost ended through a severe staph infection in his spinal column, ultimately resulting in his early retirement from vocational ministry. And although retired from the pastoral ministry, he still continued to minister here in our church, teaching the legacy class, even serving as interim pastor at Metro Baptist Church for two years, beginning in 2017. And so after 31 years of ministry here at Glenwood, it's impossible to measure the significance of his ministry in terms of the number of lives that have been changed. Only the judgment seat of Christ will reveal the eternal impact of faithfully serving the Lord for so many years. And so before Randy comes to lead us in our scripture reading, would you give a warm welcome to my father as he speaks to us this morning? Pastor Tyrone, I like the green suit. You still look very handsome, sir, very much so. Please stand as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. And if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can open up to page 1183. And again, follow along as I read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, as Pastor Tyrone is preaching his message titled, How... Do you want to be remembered? What a great message for all of us to hear this morning. Follow along as I read. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Bow our heads in prayer with me, please, this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you as God the Father, mighty and just and full of, men, full of mercy, Father. We are so grateful that your Son came to us as God the Son to pay our deserved punishment. Father, our greatest need is a Savior, and you, Lord Jesus, are the only way to come to God. Through your death, burial, and resurrection, we have perfect peace as we trust in you. May we hear from your word this morning as Pastor Tyrone preaches your word. May we be blessed as we learn from the scriptures and how we can learn to be remembered in life. Wow, Father, we thank you for this, and we ask your spirit be upon us, God the Spirit, to be with us today. And thank you for this marvelous passage and this wonderful time to be in your house, hearing your word preached and taught and what you have for each of us through it. In your name, we thank you. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. God will richly bless you for helping me up here. I appreciate that very, very much. It's quite an honor uh, to be here this morning and to be up here on the platform. I want to thank Bruce in a very special way, and I didn't expect what you did. Uh, thank you very, very much. I thank also the leadership men and you people. Many of you have come just because I'm preaching, and uh, I want you to know that I appreciate it uh, very, very, very uh, much. In fact, uh, some of the people that are still coming here, they uh, call me pastor, and uh, which I like. I really like that, you see. Now, Bruce was only five years old when we came, and uh, his brothers, Troy and uh, Todd, four and three, uh, <clears throat> we put them in the nursery that was at the back of the auditorium. And uh, many times on Sunday night, Anne would take the three boys and sit in the last pew, and she'd bring uh, candy, and she'd bring sandwiches, and she'd bring cookies. In fact, I wish that I could be back there uh, with her. <laughs> and the boys many times uh, got in trouble, and she would have to walk out, and you know what she did then. But I remember later on, uh, a few years later, uh, a neighbor on this side here uh, came and uh, said, uh, you got some kids that are throwing rocks on the, on the house. And it happened to be my boys and also a bunch of other kids. Now, you got to remember that my boys learned all that kind of stuff from the deacon kegs. And uh, <laughs> you, you see, and so, uh, but anyway, uh, I just thank the Lord that uh, they are here, and I appreciate them very, very much. Uh, in fact, if I could tell you this, one of the reasons that 
Ann and I stayed here uh, for 31 years was because the people at that time uh, loved our family so much. They loved my boys. And because of that, my boys have a wonderful taste for God and the church. And as you know, the, they are here all, every Sunday. This is their uh, church. Um, it, it's been such a blessing to see uh, uh, many of you here and also to see the uh, see you people who are new, who have come under the uh, work of uh, our pastor, uh, uh, Bruce, and the last 20 years. And I just want you to know that to Ann and I, uh, we are just so thrilled for the church. And we're thrilled for the future of the church and uh, how God is going to use you folks to continue uh, the work and do the work that God has called us to do as a church. And I want you new folks, you folks under Bruce's ministry, to know that uh, both Ann and I are, are praying for you and to continue to do a wonderful work. And also, before I get into the message, I want to thank my grandchildren uh, for being here. They are my favorite, my favorite. And uh, all of them are here, and some of them have made a special effort uh, to be here. And I want you uh, grand, uh, grandchildren to know you don't know how much I, I appreciate that. Uh, when it all comes down to the bottom, let me tell you something. Your family means a whole lot, and uh, so it sure does with me. I want to again thank you and thank you very, very much. Now, before we get into the message, turn to the person to your right and to your left. Smile at them if you would and shake their hand and say to them, you're in the right place at the right time. You're in the right place at the right time. Some years back, a few years back, I've been wanting to talk to my boys about uh, my funeral. And uh, two, uh, 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 two years this coming Thanksgiving, uh, all, of course, the whole family came. And uh, after we ate the turkey and everything, uh, it was just the boys and I that were sitting there and visiting. And I thought, well, this would be a wonderful time to talk to them about, uh, about my funeral. And so I told them I would like to have Bruce, if he could, uh, to preach it. And then I asked each one if they could say something nice about me. And uh, since that time, I've been wondering I wonder what they will say. I, I wonder what they'll say about me. I wonder if I'll be able to hear them uh, from heaven. What will they say with me being the casket here and they will be up here? What will they say in their uh, testimony about me? I'm reminded about the three guys who were ta uh, talking about their own funeral services and they were wondering what people might say when they walked by the casket. The first guy says, I want them to say he loved his family so much. The second guy says, I want them to say he always loved God and served people. The third guy says, I want them to come up and say, look, 
he moved. And I also, I also wondered, uh, what will the boys and Ann put on my uh, tombstone? I mean, will they put loving father, loving uh, husband, or will they put finally he's gone, you know? What a day when he left. It's like I read one uh, read where one said, the shell is here, but the nut <laughs> is gone, you know, you, you know. How will I be remembered? Let me ask you this morning, suppose that's your tombstone. I mean, suppose uh, your family uh, uh, is uh, coming to uh, your funeral. What, they will, what will they think about you? And what will they say about you? On the tombstone of F.B. Jane Robertson uh, were these words, As you are now, so once I. As I am now, so must you be. Prepare for death and follow me. Underneath this, someone added these words, To follow you, I am not content. How do I know which way you went, you know? Now, in a way, we're all living our epithet at this time, a life that others will remember us. And so the question this morning is, how do we want to be remembered? How do we want to be thought of when we come to the end of living our lives? What do we want our friends and our family and others to remember us and say about us. Well, I believe that Paul, in a way, was writing his epithet as he answers this question here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. You see, Paul is coming to the end of his life, and he's looking death in the face. And his words, they're, they're not a discouraged words to, of an old man to young Timothy. And there isn't any despair or defeat or fear as he faces intimate execution. And, you know, really, it's amazing of the calm assurance that Paul had when you consider his circumstances that he is at this particular time. I mean, he was in the American uh, prison in Rome. And even the worst of prisons today would be like the Hilton in comparison to the Meritian. I mean, the cell was dark and damp, uh, a dungeon reached only by a rope or a ladder of a hole above you uh, in the ceiling. He had no windows, no lights, no toilet, furniture, or running water, and he was sitting on the hard floor in the cold darkness, enduring the stench of his own urine and the filth of his own stool. And yet, and yet, after 30 years of serving the Lord, going through all this many, many persecutions, and now he's in uh, prison waiting uh, to be killed, he writes these words to young Timothy that we find in this passage of Scripture. So based on Paul's own words, I would like to answer the question, how do you want to be remembered when you come to the end of your life? I want to answer that by asking three questions. First of all, what kind of departure will you have? 
You see, in verse 6, Paul writes, First Timothy, you take over. I'm about to die. I'm already about to be sacrificed, and my life is about to be poured out as a drink offering on God's altar. The time of my spirit release, my departure from my body is at hand, and I will go free. You see, Paul knew his end was near. He sees himself as a drink offering, you see. Now, I believe that all of us know uh, that we will depart from this life here on earth and that we will die uh, someday. And let me remind you, you certainly will die someday. Many of you probably think that the end of a few years uh, down the road, I'll probably die uh, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. Now, for me personally, I don't know what to expect. If I live as long as my mother, I'll, I would have already been in heaven. If I live as long as my father, I have about six years then to live. All I know is this, that the finish line of life is out there somewhere, and it may come sooner for me uh, than I expect. But whether it's sooner or later, it's bound to come because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, Hebrews 9, verse 27. And I have an appointment with death. I don't know when or where or how, but it's in God's book in heaven. that That's one appointment, let me tell you, that I'm not going to, I won't miss, and I can't postpone. We're all going to die. So I believe the question is then, how will you die? What if you were to die this afternoon? Where would your soul spend eternity? Will it be in heaven or will it be in hell? Are you really ready to die? Have you met Jesus through salvation? Have you called upon him and realized that you're a lost sinner? You're helpless and hopeless. And you cried out to God, oh, God, save me. Come into my heart. Because that's the only way that you and I will ever go to heaven is through our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we're all going to die. And the question is then, how will we depart? How will we leave this earth? And I believe that Paul helped us here in this verse. First of all, he said that we need to view our life as a sacrifice to God. At the end of his life, Paul declares that he is already poured out as a drink offering. Now, uh, when a sacrifice was made, you see, the worshiper also brought wine. And all the wine was gradually poured out as an offering, and it was the final act of the entire uh, sacrificial uh, ceremony. And as it hit the burning coals, it evaporated and a sweet smell rose from the altar. It pictured the gradual fading away, you see, of Paul's life. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. And the wine demonstrated that the worshiper found joy in the sacrifice that was offered. 
Now, Paul considered his life to be a liquid or a drink offering slowly being poured out to God. He regarded his life as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, Romans 12, 1. Now, he didn't view his uh, execution as a cruel tragedy or as an unfair treatment of his many years of dedicated service. Rather, you see, he saw it as the finishing offering of a sacrificial life. His whole life had been a living sacrifice presented unto God. You know, I was thinking, real sacrifice for pouring out your life, my life, for God is something like maybe giving when you feel like keeping or praying for others when you need to be prayed for yourself or feeding others when your own soul is really hungry or living with integrity before people even when you don't receive any reward at all or hurting with other people even when your own heart cannot be addressed or keeping your word even when it isn't convenient, being faithful when you want to, you see, run away. So in other words, if you want to be remembered, live in such a way that you can look back and say, I poured out my life as a sacrifice to God. I heard someone say once that he'd rather burn out for Jesus than rust out. So let me ask you, are you pouring yourself out completely or are you content to live half-heartedly? Are you rusty and crusty or are you burning brightly? And let me remember, uh, remind you that partial obedience is totally and still disobedience. Number two, view your life then or view your death as a departure to God. Paul says that the time of my departure, he says, is, has come. Now, Paul is on death row now in Rome, and his time is almost up. And he's telling young Timothy, it isn't going to be long now before I die. And Paul viewed his approaching death as a departure. He looked on his death as a release from the world and an opportunity basically to set sail to eternity. Now, the choice of words in this passage, I believe, are very, very important. I mean, he could have said, the time for my death is near. Or he could have said, it won't be long now before I die. But you see, in place of the word death, Paul used the word departure. Paul thought of his death not as an ending of his life, but the moving into the next life, you see. He wanted to go home. I mean, he was ready and wanted to go to heaven. Be remembered as one who was ready and wanted to go to heaven. Paul is saying, in effect, Caesar isn't going to kill me. I am going to give my life as a sacrifice to Jesus Christ. I have been a living sacrifice 
serving him since the day I was saved. Now, he says, I will complete that sacrifice by laying down my life for him. And I gladly give all that I have to the Lord. Why don't you be remembered as a person who was willing to offer your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord with nothing held back. One who departed giving your life totally to God. Have you given your life totally to God this morning? Have you told God, take my life and use it for your glory? The second question I want to ask is this. What kind of legacy will you leave? And I find that in verse 7. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept or firmly held the faith. Now, uh, Paul is saying to young Timothy, I believe something like this. This is the only race worth running. I've run hard, right? I've, I've run hard right to the finish, and I believe all uh, I believe all the way. Now, when we think of legacy, uh, we think what is remembered of the person who left, you see, this earth. Legacy is giving something that will be valued and treasured by those who survive, you see, our death. Even though legacy is that the community and our friends, uh, they really know us. I believe that the real legacy is in the home. The greatest impact that we will ever make is in the four walls of your and my home. Listen, the greatest legacy we can leave our children are happy memories, memories they will want to think about, memories that they will talk about. And the sooner we think about the legacy as parents, the better, I believe. Why? Because the parenting window is very, very short. Before you know it, they have grown up and they are on their own. Billy Graham said, and I quote, the greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren isn't money or other material things accumulated in one's life. He says, but rather a legacy of character and faith. You see, to live a life well and come to the end of life well, to be remembered well, I believe, means to live a spiritual heritage or uh, live a spiritual heritage so your children, and might, I might add your, uh, their children, uh, that they will continue the work for God after you're gone. As far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that Anna and I involved in all the 62 years of our life together hasn't been the Glenwood Baptist Church for 31 years. This church, Life Bridge, even though this was a loving and wonderful, wonderful church to us, but it is our home. And I want to tell you that should be your number one 
achievement because unless you get it right now, I tell you, you won't be able to pass that legacy on to your sons and daughters and grandchildren. That's what it means to end well. You see, legacy isn't leaving something for people like your children, your grandchildren. It's leaving something in people. I read where someone wrote these words. It isn't what is etched upon the tombstone that is remembered most, but rather what is carved upon the hearts of others, our children, our grandchildren. So what are you carving upon the hearts of your children, your grandchildren, and uh, your, your friends? And by the way, let me say this. When it's all over with, nobody will remember you and me for what we did for ourselves. They'll remember us for what we did, you see, for others. And whatever we do for ourselves, you see, really dies, doesn't it? It dies with us. But what we do for others will be remembered. And even after we are long gone, and by the way we live now and the choices that we make today, they affect those around us and our legacies live on in the lives, you see, of others. It's not a question whether we uh, leave a legacy or not. I mean, that is as sure as death and taxes. We don't have a choice of that matter. But let me tell you something. We do have a choice of what kind we will have and what kind of legacy we will leave behind. Think about the legacy that you'd like to live or leave. How do you want to be remembered? What values do you want your life to reflect? Now's the time to invest in how you'll be remembered. So how do we leave a legacy that will last? How do we leave a legacy that we want our children, grandchildren to remember us by? Well, I believe verse 7, Paul tells us here, as he wrote to young Timothy in verse 7, how to do it. And this is what we ought to do. This is what he did. Never, never stop fighting for Jesus Christ. He said, I have fought the good fight and the idea is someone who has pressed and struggled for the prize in competition. You see, Paul uh, faced countless of trials and testings and tribulations, and his message had been finished now. And he didn't let those things, you see, stop him. He just kept on no matter what. I believe also Paul faced those struggles like you and I do of not sinning and doing things that has, wasn't pleasing to God and, uh, and making choices uh, for only ourselves. But you see, Paul, he chose God, and he did what God wanted him to do that was pleasing to him. You see, Paul's meaning here is that the Christian life isn't a church picnic at all but rather a struggle against the forces of evil, saying no to sin that isn't Christ-like at all. 
So be remembered, be remembered as one who kept going on for Christ no matter what. When you come to the end of your life, will you be able to look back and say, I have been involved in the struggle for the cause of Christ. I fought for Jesus Christ. Can you say I am currently involved in the struggle for the cause of Christ? Well, let me help you to answer that question. You cannot say that you are if you're living primary for your own comfort and affluence, spending your time and your money on your pursuit of what I, we would call the American dream. Let me tell you something. It's putting Christ first. Jesus Christ, folks, Jesus Christ is not an add-on. Jesus Christ is everything you see in our lives. And uh, so the first thing is never stop. Number two is never drop out of the race. Now, Paul wrote in another passage of scripture of the race. That means the life that God designed for you and me, the life that he has for us to live. We're to run in the way of the Lord. He says, I have finished the race. Paul is saying, I, I faithfully follow the race or the course the Lord set before me. Paul is referring to, I believe, a long race here. He speaks to the continual struggle that he faced. And let me tell you, I think that whatever else you can say about Paul, you can't say that he had an easy life. He never stopped fighting for Jesus until the end of his life. I was thinking, becoming a Christian is, you know, relatively, I believe, easy. I mean, all you have to do is acknowledge to God that you are a sinner and then receive him by faith, the free gift of eternal life that Christ provided uh, uh, by his shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Can't work for your salvation nor do anything as you know to qualify for it and God gives it free to all that recognize their need and trust in Christ alone but then comes the hard part doesn't it hanging in there as a Christian in a world that is hostile toward God and his people hanging in there um, when you are tempted to sin or hanging in there when you are tempted uh, to live for yourself. I think the real test is, will you endure? Genuine faith in Christ preserves to the finish line to the end. Will you end well? Now, coming to the end of life doesn't happen, folks, by, uh, by accident. I mean, it will only happen if you and I deliberately start right now. What God wants you and me to do for him, you and I need to do it right, right now. I mean, uh, because he, uh, life is very, very short. I mean, life flies fast, and it goes faster the older you get, I promise you. When I think of my life, I always think of it 
like a roll, a roll of toilet paper. The older you get to the end, the faster it goes. And you and I have nothing to do with the way our life began. Had nothing to do with that. But we have a lot to do with the end. It's important to start out right, folks. But it's imperative to end well. And you can count on it that Satan is going to do all he can to distract you and me from serving the Lord or cause us to be led astray. Don't give up. Don't be a quitter. The Greeks had a race in their Olympic games that was very, very unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first. It was the runner who finished with his torch, you see, still lit. I want to run all the way with the torch of my, uh, of, uh, of, uh, I, w- I want to run all the way with the flame of my torch still lit for Jesus Christ. So be remembered as one who deliberately ran all the way of your life with Jesus. Then thirdly, refuse. Refuse to compromise the faith. Here Paul says, I have kept the faith. And you see, this simply means that Paul refused to give in to the truth. To only go halfway. He refused that. He hung, he hung on to the faith no matter what. Never compromise your faith in Jesus Christ. Refuse to do that. And as Paul came to the end of his life, he was saying, I believe, something like this. I have given my all to run the race right, and my faith is as strong at the finish as it was at the start. I've been faithful, and I never compromised. I read of a faithful man, Dietrich Bonfar, and he was a Protestant theologian. At the height of World War II, he was imprisoned for taking a stand against Hitler, and yet he continued to urge his fellow believers to resist Nazi oppression, and cruelty. A group of Christians believing that Hitler was the Antichrist asked Monhofer, why do you expose yourself to all this danger? Jesus will return and all your work and suffering will be nothing. And he answered back, if Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I'll rest from my labor. But today I have worked to do. I must continue the struggle until it's finished. We all have heard the saying used of an athlete. He left all his he left his all on the playing field. I remember my dad telling me this that Tyrone, you leave everything on the playing field. Leave it all there. Uh, let them see you play. You don't have to brag about it. Just let them see a play. It's an expression, as you know, that carries the meaning. They gave it all and they gave everything that they had. And that's what God wants of us. Give everything you have. I promise you, 
The Lord is never impressed by half-hearted effort. He wants faithfulness. Paul was faithful to the end. He kept on going for God to the very end. Even the chains of a Roman jail couldn't uh, destroy his faith or shatter his confidence, you see, in God. Faithfulness is best defined, I believe, the ability to do the most you can with what you have and where you are. You see, Paul, he never, he never stopped fighting or running or believing. He was faithful to God to the end. Be remembered as one who didn't compromise the faith and was faithful to God to the end. Now, faithfulness is God's requirement. Fruitfulness is his reward, which leads me to the third question, and that is, what kind of reward will you receive in verse 8? There Paul says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, that's a victorious crown, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I believe first that Paul wanted to go home. I believe he wanted to go home. He wanted, he was ready for heaven. I remember about 25 years, give or take, ago, our church went canoeing down south someplace on the river and camped out in a tents and slept on the ground in sleeping bags. Now, all we had, uh, what we did, was a really a, a wonderful time. But every night, I tried to sleep in that dumb old sleeping bag on the ground. I mean, it was just awful. I would think every night of home and how nice home was and the kind of bed that I have and wish someone would just cut to the chase and ask, why don't we just go home? For me, the little venture on the river was fun, but ultimately, I just wanted to go home. And I think that is what Paul was thinking about here. I mean, life has been good. He says, I've lived well. I've served God and others. And now I think I'd just like to go home. And secondly, I believe Paul was ready to meet the Lord, the righteous judge. I mean, he had a secure hope for the future in spite uh, of his uh, circumstances. Paul pictures himself as a victorious Greek athlete who, having won the race, is now looking up to the judge's stand, awaiting his laurel wreath of victory. But you see, most honors uh, are, are short-lived, as you know. Greek honors received uh, uh, laurel wreaths and they were, uh, they were an awesome honor. But uh, they were like those Christmas flowers that we have up here at Christmas time. I mean, they just don't last very long. I mean, they just wilt away. You see, Paul's crown of righteousness, folks, is eternal. 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul makes clear that righteousness, which is basically being declared in a right relationship, you see, with God, is something that we have right now. We receive it the moment we believe and receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And notice that Paul says here, it is laid up or in store for him. I mean, folks, it's guaranteed reward. It will never fade. It will never rust or reparate. Nobody will be able to take it away from you or me. God is going to give us reward, and that's what is ahead for you and me, I believe, of when we get to heaven. Now, if you went to the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus repeats the divine truth of the divine reward, which I believe should cause all of us God's servants to search our hearts and motives and deeds. Listen to it, if you will, please. Revelation 22, 12. This is what he says. God says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Boy, am I glad for that. And, now listen, and my reward is with me. Now listen, to render to every man according to what he has done. You see, Paul said that selfishly motivated good deeds or worthless deeds like wood, hay, and stubble, you'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12, may be a great help to other people. God may even use it to his own glory. But, but they will remain and they will, will merit absolutely no reward for the doer, you see. Although those of us who have believed and accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we have already been justified by faith and will not face condemnation, you see, our salvation, of course, is in Jesus Christ. It isn't in jeopardy at all. We don't earn it. It's a free gift. But, are you listening now? But God will still judge our works as Christians and reward us, the Bible says, accordingly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 makes it clear that that passage of Scripture there is, uh, is an event that is for believers only. In other words, if you aren't building from your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will not be at the judgment seat of Jesus of, of Christ. You will either be in the tribulation or already in uh, hell. My lost friend, this morning, I need to remind you that you are only one day closer to eternity than you were yesterday. You need to prepare to meet God. And Paul describes the Christian life as a building here in uh, chapter 1, I mean, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. And he tells us that he laid, he laid the foundation. 
but it is our responsibility and duty to build on that foundation. It is our duty to build correctly. The whole idea is this in this verse, I believe. When the Lord saved your soul, he placed you and me on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since that very moment, you and I were saved. You and I have been building, you, building, you see, a life. And this life can either be uh, a thing of glory to, the God, to God or it can be a thing of disgrace before the Lord. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will answer for how we have built our lives. Paul says here in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians that some building materials are burnable, wood, hay, and straw, and they will burn up completely. Others will use unburnable materials such as gold and silver and precious stones, and they will find their labor that will stand, you see, the test. They will receive a reward, and those who build poorly will suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved as a person who is rescued. They, but they will themselves will be saved as a person who is rescued from a fire. Now, there's a legend of a wealthy woman who, when she reached heaven, was shown a very plain mansion. And she objected. Well, she was told in heaven, that is the house that you, that you prepared for. Who is that mansion? Uh, who's that mansion across the way? And she said, well, that it belongs to your gardener. How is it that he has one so much better than my mansion? And she was told the houses here are prepared from the materials that are sent up. We do not choose them. You do that by your earthly faithfulness. Now, this may be a legend, but let me tell you, it bears a profound truth because faithfulness will be graciously rewarded. Unfaithfulness will not be uh, rewarded whatsoever. So this morning, be remembered as one who looked forward, going to heaven and receiving rewards from God. You see, God doesn't expect the same service from each of us, but he does expect the same faithfulness from all of us, you see. He wants us to fight uh, the fight. He wants us to finish the race. He wants us to keep the faith as we long for his coming. You know, I believe that when we focus on the future, that we will be led to live purely in the present. And then another word, uh, the words will reward. They're in the scripture. They come from a Greek word that means to give back than to put away by giving. A more figurative sense is to pay back or return. Now, I believe that we will give our rewards back to God because of what he has done for us. 
I mean, folks, let me tell you, when we get to heaven, we're going to be so thankful that he loved us, that he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross of Calvary for us. I mean, we're going to be overwhelmed. We can't imagine here on earth what we're going to have in heaven. And when we get there, we'll want to give back every reward that God gave to us. And uh, that ought to really motivate us to give everything that we have, our life, our possessions, and our talents. This morning, young people, can I encourage you to give your all to God and let him mold your life now? You've got your whole life ahead of you for God. You young adults and middle-aged folk, let God have your everything. You have many, many years yet to serve him. And the elderly that are here this morning, your life, folks, isn't over. God has us here for a reason. It's never too late to be what you might have been for the Lord. Let me encourage you all to give it all because one day we're all going to lie in a casket your family, your friends are going to walk by and they're going to look down. What will they think about you? What will they say? Let's bow our heads if we will, please. As our heads are bowed, I'm going to pray a prayer, but I'm going to ask you, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, would you do that now? Would you just ask the Lord to come into your heart would you just say, God, I know I'm hopeless, I'm helpless of ever getting to heaven, and I'm crying out to you, and I'm asking you to give me eternal life. As a Christian, would you just say, Lord, here I am. Here's my everything. It doesn't matter what, how old you are, but is everything to God? Have you given him everything? Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your love for us. How we thank you for giving your only begotten Son to die on the cross of Calvary. How we thank you that we can have eternal life in you. God, how we thank you. And I pray that if there's no one, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, Lord, help them to realize the need of Christ coming in their heart, that they'll call upon you and just say, God, save me. And I pray for every Christian here, young people, middle-aged and old, that they'll cry out to you and say, from this day forward, I'm going to give everything to you. For this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.